Welcome to the Overnight Trainer Podcast, where each week we talk about all things related to the world of learning and development, including facilitation, instructional design, sales enablement, and so much more. I'm your host, Sarah Canistra, and I'm an L&D strategist and career coach, and I'm here to take the guesswork out of becoming an L&D professional and show you how to unlock continued success in your learning and development career. I'm on a mission to quickly develop the next generation of L&D leaders who are looking to create meaningful and engaging learning experiences. So, if you're looking to transition into L&D for the first time, have found yourself accidentally in a training position, or are working up the ranks as an L&D professional already, you've come to the right place. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Overnight Trainer Podcast. I am so excited that you're here and I am really excited about today's episode. We have a very special guest on talking about a very important topic, uh, a topic that I get asked a lot of questions on. So before we get to that, you know that I love to shout out my clients and today we are celebrating. I'm so excited. Uh, One of my clients just put in her teaching notice this past week and it wasn't something that we had planned out together that was expected to happen this soon. Uh, She was going to keep on teaching until she found that perfect uh, instructional design position. But the way, because of the way that we positioned her, she was able to pick up several freelance instructional design projects within hours of giving her notice. Okay. So not days, not weeks, not months, not years. Within hours, she had several freelance instructional design projects available. And like I said, she wasn't necessarily, she was mentally ready to leave the classroom, but we weren't quite there yet from a plan perspective. Um, so it wasn't an easy decision for her, but knowing that she had a ton of freelance work waiting for her allowed her to make this decision, the decision that was right for her and her mental health and for her family. So you know who you are. I'm so, so proud of you. I know it wasn't an easy decision to make, um, but I'm so excited that you made this decision, that you're jumping all in with your instructional design career. Uh, and amazing, amazing things are happening for you in the next few weeks. You know that. I feel that. And I cannot wait to see all of your success. So let's get started with today's episode. Today on the show, I am joined by learning strategist and leader, Matthew Lee. So Matthew has run learning and development for both private and government sectors, and he creates high-performing learning and development organizations that have produced tangible results for tens of thousands of learners. Matthew's all about proactively determining and targeting areas for improvement beyond traditional learning and development, and he's hired, mentored, and trained over 300 training professionals during his career. All right. Welcome, Matthew, to the Overnight Trainer Podcast. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm I'm good. You know, we were just talking before the episode, good considering I don't know what day it is, but other than <laughs> that, <laughs> doing great. And I'm I'm so excited to have you on because... You know, usually I have my audience is people who are looking to transition into learning and development, and I keep the topics pretty specific to them. But what I'm excited about is that this is really an episode for everyone, right? Anyone who's in L&D, especially because it's one that L&D leaders will really need to hear. And I know we'll get into that a little bit more, but I'm excited because this topic is a really, really important one. And I think people who are transitioning into L&D need to know it. And they are going to be our future leaders anyways. So they need to know 
know, we're talking all about subject matter expertise and I think it's important that everyone hears that episode. So before we get started, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about you. You know, who's Matt Lee? How'd you get into L&D? Your journey moving up the ranks? Tell us all about it. Okay. Um, well, I, I mentioned to you uh, on a, a previous call, I kind of uh, fell into learning and development, not unlike yourself. I um, was in the military. Um, I was in the military uh, post 9-11 and for some of the global war on terror. And then uh, I separated from the military and got married at right around the same time. Um, but I felt that call because as the global war on terror kind of stretched out longer and longer, I, I felt the call to go back and, and do something and uh, re-enlisting and or going overseas, I was informed was not on the plate. So uh, the way that I did that was um, by trying to get back to, to working with the military. And I, I landed at uh, the intelligence school in Fort Huachuca starting as a, as a trainer, not something I'd ever expected to, to do. Um, really felt like I, I didn't have a lot of expertise. I was hired in as a subject matter expert, which um, we'll talk about a little more why I think that's sort of backwards. But um, I uh, worked my way up over the course of the time that I was there um, to, by the end of it, I was running five different schools to include uh, an international course and some um, joint service courses that incorporated the Army, the Navy, the Marines. Uh, we even had some Coast Guard, all of the services. Um, at about that time, I decided to throw some education on top of the experience, and I went to get my uh, my MBA. And during the MBA, one of my classmates said, "You know, what you're doing sounds interesting, and, and my company sorely needs that. Would you be willing to come out and help me do that?" Absolutely. So I, I worked with them for about a year and a half to try to get them um, spun up and up to speed. And then I got the uh, I guess you'd call it the learning and development dream of, uh, job of a lifetime, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was. Um, what we have is broken. We need it fixed from top to bottom. Um, you know, sort of the thing that every L&D manager leader aspires to do is to Absolutely. come in and, and create something that, that's a reflection of themselves. And so um, I started working on that. And then uh, coronavirus and wildfires and um, all of that, I needed something that provided a little more flexibility. So I shifted and transitioned into a, uh, um, a consultant role, which I've been um, doing on and off as, as time permits since then. So um, I kind of fell into it backwards, and as I worked my way through it, I realized, wow, this is something I have a passion for. I love it, and I feel like it's it's poorly understood from a leadership perspective. And so, hopefully, we can change some of that, and and um, you know, manage up as well as down in the in the process. Absolutely, I'm nodding my head, which obviously people won't be able to see, but. You know, it's it definitely poorly under, very much misunderstood for sure. And one, I know you and I had talked before, and one of the things that was really, really interesting to me about your journey is how many people you've hired, you know, as training professionals throughout all of these careers. And, you know, I know you've impacted like tens of thousands of learners, you know, throughout your journey. And obviously you need a big, you know, army for back of letter words, <laughs> talk about the military, but to, you know, army of trainers and training professionals to do that. So you know, and you had mentioned to me before too, that subject matter expertise was one of the last things you looked for, you were even targeting. So why is that when you were hiring all, you know, hundreds of people over the course of your career, why is subject matter expertise something that you're not targeting? Um, well, to, I, I guess as a, a, a clarification to that, I, I am targeting subject matter expertise in that learning and development is a subject matter that has expertise. Boom, ladies and gentlemen, yes. <laughs> that's, 
that's one of the things that I think gets lost out there is mm -hmm. that as that subject that learning and development itself is a subject matter and it requires expertise. And so if you hire, um, I guess, to go back to the, the old nomenclature, if you're hiring subject matter experts into L&D, then you have to teach them to become L&D subject matter experts. So my, um, I guess, sort of career experiment was which one was faster? And it turned out to, to me that um, not only was it faster, but it was better to, to bring in learning and development professionals who understood how to take information and um, build it and design it and train it in such a way that it's getting into the learner's head. It was easier for me to teach them about the subject matter than it was to take a subject matter expert and teach them about adult learning theory and information and um, instructional design techniques and um, passion and all of those things that, that you're looking for in a good trainer, it was easier for me to take a good trainer and make them a subject matter expert. Um, and I think that a lot of that came with, um, as I became more senior in my roles and as I moved forward, I had more leeway to do that. I think there's some fear, especially in, in new learning and development leaders or in uh, organizations where learning and development is a, is a new concept there's that fear that, okay, if this is going to go sideways, it's not going to be my fault. I'm going to make sure I hire the people that check all those boxes and they, you know, I, no one will ever be able to say they didn't have the right credentialing to teach this stuff. Um, but as I got the more leeway and as I got more confident in what I was doing, um, that fell by the wayside to a point where um, in some cases I wasn't targeting subject matter expertise at all. None. I, in fact, some cases, um, several topics where I was teaching theory only, subject matter expertise was actually a drawback. Yeah, it's interesting you say a drawback because, and I know you and I have talked about this offline before, but you know, I find that when, it's, it's not that subject matter experts can't become great trainers, right? And that's how, I mean, I originally started sure. out as that, but um, not to toot my own horn there, but you know, I, I think you make such a valid point of becoming a subject matter expert in learning and development. And the more that you become a subject matter expert in learning and development, the harder it is to keep up with the subject matter expertise of, your, of the industry that you happen to be working for. It's like your brain can only consume so much and you, know, you, ha you have to pick a, pick a lane. And that passion that you talked about, I think is so important. And I find with subject matter experts, I love them and I work with a lot, a lot of them as well, but subject matter experts who become trainers have a lot, usually have a lot of passion for the subject matter and mm -hmm. sometimes forget that the role of L&D, you need to have a passion for the people and a passion for the craft and a passion for training. So Absolutely. it's hard because what I've noticed a lot of times with subject matter experts who become trainers, a mistake they kind of make early on is because they are the subject matter expert, they don't really seek out any additional information. So you're only hearing from them, their lens, their point of view, and that's not the way that training works. So I, I you know, that kind of leads me into, that's you know, my thought process on it, but I'd love to hear from you what, in addition to what we were just saying, but like, what do you think the harm is with L&D hiring managers hiring for subject matter expertise or industry subject matter expertise over expertise in learning and development. Um, well, you're, you're exactly right on, on all of those points. And uh, the, a lot of the harm is um, in the organization, you're going to have that single lens. You're going to be teaching a lot from, you're going to have trainers who are teaching from a, this is how I did it perspective, which is um, 
uh, to use a, a metaphor, it's it's one arrow in a quiver. Whereas as, as instructors, our job is to give as many arrows as you can have in your quiver. So we're teaching the theory, all of the possible ways that something can be done, not the way that you did it this one time um, in the past or this way that you did it for your 20 year career. Um, that's useful, but it's less useful than here are the 25 different ways it can be done. When you find yourself in a situation, you're going to be able to draw from, from any of these arrows to use it and adapt it to that particular situation and to be able to, to, to use it in that way. Um, another issue that I found is that um, there, there's almost a subject matter expertise competition when you have trainers with subject matter expertise <laughs> in that um, and when I first was working with the army and uh, we would have people come in and we'll say, well, I've been doing this job for three years. You've only been doing it for two, so my way is right. Um, or you know, you only did this for six months, so you don't know what you're talking about. I've done it for five years. Or I did this for a career. And in reality, both of them were right based on the circumstances that they were drawing from to um, put their training together. They were right in that circumstance, probably for themselves with whatever resources they had available. That was probably the best choice at that time. But it pigeonholes them. Um, so the, the learners will come away with a very small subset of the actual learning that you want them to have. And that's why I mentioned before that sometimes I found that having subject matter expertise was actually um, harming or limiting because if you bring somebody in and you have them learn up on the theory of a thing, um, then they're better equipped to teach the theory of that thing. Now, that's not to say that, that um, subject matter expertise has no role in training, absolutely. I, um, and in fact, uh, you know, like yourself, coming from a subject matter expertise into a training, I wouldn't have disqualified you because you were a subject matter expert. It wouldn't have been the first thing I looked at. You have all the other intangibles and the, the knowledge and the passion and the things that I would have looked for and you would have made the cut, you'd be happy to know. Oh, but, awesome, yes, sign me up. <laughs> I don't know if I'd make it in the military, but. <laughs> uh, as a trainer, I think you'd be fantastic. <laughs> but the, the, they're likely to be marginalized because of that. Um, you know, they get pigeonholed into those 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 issues and we want to be teaching the theory we want to be teaching the broad steps um so yeah i learning a learning and development organization as a as a job seeker if i looked at an organization and it had a hard and fast requirement for subject matter expertise um maybe it's just my phase of my career at this point but i would see that as as a potential warning sign yes i agree tell me more about like what why do you feel that way? I agree with you, but I'd love to hear your take on why that would be a warning sign. And it should be well, a warning sign. Uh, a number of different reasons. Um, I think that it can be indicative either of an organization that doesn't know what they're doing with learning and development. And they're kind of trying to find their way by um, copy and pasting from some status quo that's worked in the past. We hired subject matter experts here and it worked great. Let's do it here. Um, it could be indicative of a uh, a learning and development leader or a hiring manager that is a little bit unsure of themselves. And so they want to have that um, certification check the box so that in case something goes wrong, it's not my fault. Um, I don't, or they don't have trust in themselves to be able to, to pick out the, the aspects of a trainer or, or um, an instructional designer or a training coordinator or whatever job they're trying to fill. They don't have enough confidence in themselves to be able to, to find that aside from subject matter expertise. And so um, I would look at that. And I, I would probably still take the interview, but I, I would push back on why is this a case? Why is subject matter expertise so important to you? 
Now, there are going to be situations where that's going to be absolutely true. Um, one of the places that, uh, that I worked at in the past was a very, very high-end, um, top-of-the-line optical engineering firm. And it took me almost a year before I could even communicate with them because they had such a specialized <laughs> industry and such specialized knowledge that it, having some subject matter expertise would have definitely made that transition a lot easier. And so I can understand it in that. But by and large, 95% of the organizations in the world just don't require that. And so if you see them leaning back on that, that's a, it's a warning flag to me. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think it's also indicative of does the company value, like truly value learning and development, or yeah, are they just sure. looking for someone who can just come in and, you know, check some boxes because they, they, they know what they're, what they're doing, quote unquote, is from a subject matter expertise side. So Absolutely. it always concerns you when I see that of like what, and to your point, I always say take the interview, right? It's always great to even have an interview practice in general. Mm -hmm. No one's, you know, no one's forcing you to work there. No. So I, I totally agree with that because they may have a really good reason for it, or maybe they were burned by someone in the past who didn't have it, right? So I think there's, to your point, there's going to be reasons for it. But it's interesting that we're talking about this because it's today's Wednesday. This won't air till next Tuesday, but I do um, on LinkedIn stories and ask me anything on, mm -hmm. on Wednesdays. And I, I just got this question. I'll be answering it a little bit later, but it really falls kind of into what we're talking about. And it was it's someone who's in property management, which is interesting. That's where my background originally started mm -hmm. as well. And they're wondering like, how do I kind of market myself out? Like they're in training and development there, but how do I market myself out there? And I think kind of what we're talking about right now too is trainers often boast about their subject matter expertise for that industry. And I, I, I really want to challenge people who are new to the industry of learning and development, really hone in on being an L&D expert and don't focus just because you've worked at that company or you were a subject matter expert there, you can't rely on that because then you start to feel when you're looking for new positions, like, oh, I've pigeonholed myself as a expert at this, but you really need to be an expert at learning and development. So I thought it was interesting. I got that question today and we're kind of talking about what the harm is in, in only hiring subject matter experts. So I find that interesting. And then, you know, talking about being a subject matter expert in learning and development, you and I talked about this last time, and then I saw you uh, had a LinkedIn article on it, which I loved. Um, about being a subject matter expert in instructional design. And I have a lot of people who are interested in instructional design that listen to this show. And you talked about tactical ID versus strategic ID and how they require a different set of skills. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that. And then also too, like how does subject matter expertise play into that? Like what different, I guess more of my question is, what were the skills need to be that you would need to be a subject matter expert in tactical ID or subject matter expert in strategic ID? That question okay. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, honestly, that um, that article that I wrote on LinkedIn was a direct result of our conversation because um, quite frankly, up until our conversation, I thought I was the only person who saw that. I thought perhaps I was the one that was crazy, but uh, you know, I just didn't understand that. I didn't see a lot of language um, out in the world talking about it until I saw, um, you know, your LinkedIn profile and how you were talking about it and then our conversation and it sparked in me that, wow, I'm not the only one who sees this. Um, so in my sort of crude um, military way, that's how I decided to describe them as strategic versus tactical. 
tactical being, you know, the 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 very immediate local area stuff, whereas strategic being, you know, um, a much higher viewpoint of uh, of what's going on. So in the in the realm of instructional design, um, what I see is two echelons of instructional design, where the 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 tactical level is the instructional design around a training event. So um, hitting, making sure that this particular training event, whatever that is, be it a, um, um, a video or a live in-person training or however this training event comes about, is it hitting all the modalities for potential learners? Is it building off of um, the adult learner theory? Um, are we using um, the right colors, pictures, seating, everything that's involved in making sure that a class goes well, all of those things that are learning and development expertise type things. Um, are we doing that for this particular training or this particular training event? And then the strategic level being, okay, how do all of these training events merge with the whole of the company? The, the entire organization is a, it's a moving beast that is trudging towards some goal that's hopefully well-defined in a mission statement and well-communicated by the leadership. Hopefully. Not always the case, <laughs> not always the case, but hopefully uh, in a situation like that where um, the company has a, a great idea of where it wants to go, then how does learning and development strategically fit into that role? How can learning and development um, mitigate the existing pain points, the problems that they're already having, but also how can it work as well, uh, again, back to my my poor military nomenclature, how does it work as a force multiplier? And a force multiplier is basically just defined as something that you can add to an existing packet, um, people, organization, whatever, that makes it better in um, by multiple effects, multiple um, echelons. What I mean by that would, back to the, the military, you have um, a unit, you have a, a small fire team of guys that are going out and they're walking around through the village. Now, that particular fire team has the capabilities of all four of those people. But if you add a guy with a radio and you train him how to use the radio and you have a drone up ahead with missiles, that, that guy with the radio is now a force multiplier. He can bring down a lot more than that four person team could ever do because of that additional force multiplier effect. So in that case, L&D could be a force multiplier effect in bettering your learning or bettering your leadership. Um, if you have a, a, a weak, an untested, um, a naive, a newly installed leadership team, training them and teaching them on how to be better leaders and how better lead their people will have a multiplier effect on the entire organization. It will make not just the leaders better, but everybody who works for them better. And so how does, how does instructional design help that? Where are the spots where it can have that effect? And those are the cases that are a lot more difficult to quantify too. Those are the cases where um, those new organizations, the organizations where L&D is not a priority or they just don't understand it and everything is metrics, metrics, metrics. Mitigating pain points, I can get you metrics for that all day. Show me your pain point, show me your metric. And once I'm done, I'll kick out a metric that shows how much better they're doing. It's a little bit more difficult on the other side. And so that's where having an organization that truly understands learning and development and understands its strategic effects can be useful. So to your point of what are the skills that each one needs, tactical instructional design, you need to know inside and out, um, whatever instructional design theory you're going to use, um, Addy being the base one, but there are 
hundreds of others, Bloom's taxonomy, whatever it is that you're going to use to, to create your, or your training. You need to have an understanding of the capabilities of the resources that you have on hand, um, some ability to design. You need to understand adult learner theory. Um, those are the kind of things that I would look for in a, a what I consider a tactical instructional designer. In a strategic instructional designer, I want um, organizational effectiveness, organizational design, um, uh, an MBA. That's why I went after an MBA was because I wanted to understand holistically how the entire organization works so that I can better slot myself in. But I'm looking for organizational understanding and an understanding of how instructional design can fit into that and how it can best be utilized in order to make the organization and everybody in it better. I love that. And I think, you know, like I said, so many people who listen or you know, even people who are my clients too, are, you know, wanting to get into instructional design. And I, and I always ask you know, why, and are you sure? And not in a bad way. I love instructional I love that I, question, you know, by the way. Yeah, it's it, because mostly it's because they hear someone else did it. Um, you know, I, I see it a lot in, in teachers too. Of Oh, I'm a teacher and someone else became an instructional designer. So I'm going to become an instructional designer. And, you know, and, and I, I have clients who are teachers who have become instructional designers and who are incredibly successful. And I have other ones who realize facilitation is better for them or analytics are better for them. So there's so many different ways and we could probably talk for hours about that, but I love here how you, I wanted to bring this up because I think you break it down. And if someone wants to get into instructional design for them to really consider, you know, I think it's important too, from a strategic standpoint that you understand the tactical too. but that it almost creates a, a growth path and a succession path for you, right? That if you are a tactical ID, start learning some of these tools that you're talking about right here, organizational effectiveness, business strategy, um, because then you can actually move into that more strategic ID role. And you know, I think it's important for people to hear that. And I loved how you put it from a tactical and strategic standpoint, because it's not, ID is not a one size fits all. And also, when you're looking for jobs within an organization, they might say instructional designer, but you have to really find out, do they want a tactical instructional designer or a strategic one? Because usually they're not saying it or they're not clear about it. You just see instructional designer job posting, right? So you have to inquire more about what it is exactly that they're, they're looking for. So I love the way that you, that you put that. And then thinking too about the structure of teams, and this is probably a question more for the L&D leaders who are listening, but also for the future L&D leaders who are on the call or on the show right now listening. But what are your thoughts on how L&D teams should be structured? So we you know, talked about tactical and strategic ID and leadership and all of that, but we're looking at positions or specific L&D subject matter expertise what would you look for as if you were if you were able to create a high functioning training team from the ground up today how would you structure that what would that look like okay one thing i just want to touch on briefly before we move on to that um for your uh, existing clients or or for people that are listening to this podcast now that are in an organization and they look around and they don't see a, a strategic level instructional designer there's your career path in a sort of a tail wagging the dog sort of way if you can if you can build up the expertise and knowledge and be able to sell it to the organization about how we can better utilize what we're already using, that's your career path to, to a higher level uh, instructional I design is by creating it yourself. That's great. Um, so don't limit yourself to existing job descriptions because there's more. Um, high functioning uh, L&D team. Uh, uh, some of this is going to be a function of um, size of the organization and complexity of the organization. 
Um, and some of it is going to be um, how much the organization is going to be willing to invest in it because the mitigating of the pressure points, that's going to show some small metrics that you can then apply a dollar value to. But by and large, L&D is not a profit center, um, at least not one that is very easy to show on paper. Um, if you have, uh, you have the right people in leadership positions and you can explain to them that multiplier effect that we talked about, and while also showing the mitigation, um, then they might see it more as a, um, as a, a cash cow. But by and large, it's not a profit and loss center. So they're going to only put in as much into it as they feel is necessary to get things done. At any level, uh, at any size of the organization, there you need, you're going to have to have somebody who um, figures out where the training needs to go, designs that training, um, administers that training, records that training, documents it, um, and then does all the, the, the post-training functions. Now, in some cases, in very small companies, that's one guy. Mm -hmm. um, but in the past, I've worked in organizations where um, as the, the manager or the director, my job was the, um, the strategic vision of the department and getting it to work with the other organizations and dealing with the operations side, finding out their point, pain points, working around with their organization to see other places that things could get better, the things that we could directly address, going into the meetings and selling it to the leadership and all of that. And then I had uh, an instructional design manager whose primary responsibility was to make sure that the, the tactical level instructional design fit with the, the strategic level that he and I were meeting about. So I would go to these meetings and come back and say, this is where I kind of think we see it's heading. He would go to his team and come back and say, these are the packages we've drawn up. What do you think? Um, and I had two of those, one for um, different portions of the operations department um, or the, uh, the, the organization's operations. Um, within each of those teams, they had um, multiple trainers, some of whom could also function as instructional designers to help out, but they had multiple trainers whose job was to take that information out, go to the locations and deliver that training and to make themselves as smart as they could on uh, adult learning theory and on the, the topics that they were presenting so that they were um, the experts that they needed to be in both of those. Uh, and then on top of that, we had uh, several coordinators whose job it was to make sure that whatever, wherever they were going, they had the resources that they needed once they got there, whether it be, you know, we're going to get you an easel or a Pika projector, or um, we're going to get you um, a 200 seat auditorium at the local hotel, or um, we're going to have everybody, you know, pile in and they're all going to drive to this location. They were coordinating all of that while also working on the learning management system. Um, there is a, a significant amount of administration that goes into a learning management system that I don't think that, that um, leaders really truly understand how much goes into that, setting the hierarchies and ensuring the hierarchies are up to date with hires, fires, terminations, transfers, new email 100%, addresses, marriages. 100%. Um, making the certifications, getting the certifications out to the proper regulatory authorities who need to know that you've checked off the boxes on these things and keeping uh, multiple data files so that in case one of them gets destroyed, you have backups. And on top of all that, working on the reporting system so that the right people are getting the right information and the right training. There's a ton of work in, in just a learning management system by itself. Um, so true. And then I had, a, I had an instructional design team whose job it was to create, maintain, and develop learning management system training. So 
basically three teams running all of those those different departments. Now your your mileage may vary depending on your organization. If your only training delivery vehicle is LMS, maybe you only need one team. If your um, organization is uh, huge, like a, a Walmart or a General Electric, you probably have more than just two teams for your operations. But all of those functions need to get done. And as the, the employee count goes up or the requirement count goes up, they get exponentially harder. So um, I don't think there is a perfect design way to do it. Yeah. But in organizations I've been in, that's how we've done it. That was perfect for our situation. Yeah, it sounds like too, like, and I, I agree with you that there's there's someone leading the strategy, right? So you have that strategic person and they're leading the strategy. And then you have the, you have your tactical people who are actually being able to, to implement on that strategy and whether it be a mix of instructional designers and trainers or you know trainers who have both that experience mm-hmm. um, as well, but need to have some sort of instructional design expertise and some sort of facilitation expertise there. Yeah. Uh, someone helping to coordinate the efforts as well, because there's, I think, to your point, in addition to people underestimating what the LMS requires, mm-hmm. a lot of th- people underestimate what a coordinator would need to do or all the coordination that has to go into, even if it's a virtual training event, that there's so many moving parts to it. And then I couldn't agree with you more about how understaffed usually the the LMS positions are. And I I really truly believe that if you wanna have a working LMS that people are using that is giving you the data you need, you have to have an LMS administrator. It's not, it's never a part-time job for anyone. You could be a small organization of 200 people or or an organization of 200,000 people. If the systems are set up correctly, it really is the same job. (laughs) You know, that's if you're, but if you, you have to dedicate to, in order for it to actually work. Now you could use it as a, a, a garbage dump, as I call it sometimes for your mm-hmm. random e-learnings and hope that people remember their password and can log into it. Um, but <laughs> if you really want to actually have one that people are utilizing and, and really gain traction on it and having an engaging learning experience in it, someone needs to, someone needs to be in charge of it. And some, oh, I, I've worked in an organization and we were only well, short of 4,000 people. And we had two LMS administrators because oh. there was so much happening and so many moving parts that we realized we needed actually two people to really work on, on the administration of it. So I love that Absolutely. you you bring that up and like those key points are really important. And of course it changes here and there for you know different organizations, but I love talking about that too, because going back to people looking to, to transition into learning and development, that there is so much more than just being a trainer or instructional designer too. That there's strategic paths, there's tactical paths, there's coordination, there's, you know, from a technological technology standpoint, you know, LMS administration. So uh, I see jobs for co- L&D copywriting and for L&D analysts. And I'm like, mm-hmm. those didn't exist when I first started, but they're all over the place now. So I, you know, you're, you can really build up that team. But I think from a core perspective of strategy, instructional design, facilitation, uh, coordination, and LMS administration, like those will, those are solid. And then depending on your size, to your point, you need to grow them as well, because as your company grows, you need more support there. So I, I love that. And then I guess my last question to you too is so many people who are listening are looking to transition into L&D and kind of going back to where we started with talking about the subject matter expertise and that question that even that I got today, and they're nervous to apply for jobs. 
um, because they don't have subject matter expertise. So what advice do you have for those people who are nervous to even apply because they don't have the subject matter expertise? And then I'd love to hear from you too, like what wisdom you can give people who've applied to L&D jobs and they've been turned down because they don't have subject matter expertise. Okay. Um, I would say to those listening to this podcast right now, um, if you don't have that subject matter expertise, apply anyway, apply. Um, the best thing they can do is, is ask your favorite question of themselves. Why do I want to do this? And based on that answer, deciding what it is they want to do and then um, not giving up, you know, um, you want to do this thing and somewhere out there, there exists an organization that wants somebody who wants to do this thing. So the wisdom I would give those people that keep getting the door shut in their face because of the subject matter expertise, that wasn't the organization for you. Mm -hmm. They weren't set up to, to use you appropriately. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate because everything else being created equal, it might've looked like a terrific situation, but if they're slamming the door in your face because of subject matter expertise only, they're not set up to, to best utilize your, your abilities and your skills that you already bring to the table. So don't give up, find a good way to highlight those skills and abilities that get you to your why. Why do I wanna do this? Is it because I enjoy teaching people? I get a certain satisfaction out of that. Well, then facilitation is probably right for you. Is it because um, I, I've sat through hundreds of trainings and there just looks like there are so many different ways it could get better. Well, then maybe instructional design is there for you. Yeah. Whatever your why is, figure that out. Find the organizations that um, will help you answer whatever your desire is, but don't take them shutting the door in your face because of lack of subject matter expertise as a final no organization will hire you because you don't have expertise. That's not the case. Somewhere out there exists an organization that wants somebody like you that has the passion, the ability, the desire, the want to do that thing, and they will get you whatever subject matter expertise that you need. I love that. It's on them. You know, it's not, it's not on you, right? Like, like we said, I mean, we talked about it earlier too. Like it's a, that's a red flag. Like that's a, it might, it hurts, it stings, but then it's like, nope, that's, there's no way I would have reached my full potential if that's what they were looking for. If that was the deal breaker for them. Sure. So I love that advice. If you were to magically go back and be able to snap your fingers and make them take you probably wouldn't be happy because they wouldn't be using you effectively and you wouldn't be answering your why. Yep. I love that. Matthew, this has been awesome. You know, I love talking about subject matter expertise with you. We've talked about it a couple of times now. Uh, people are going to want to find you and talk to you more. Where can people connect with you, learn more about you, get to know you a little bit more? Well, right now, uh, reach out to me via email. It's uh, matt at matthewlee.info. Um, I'm transitioning back now from um, doing contract now that things seem to be sort of dying down a little bit and everybody's approaching the new year with this gung-ho, let's make 2021 better. I'm looking to get back into the corporate world. So I'm just now starting to transition that. So there's, I'm not taking on new consulting clients um, except in, in uh, very specific cases. But uh, you know, if you wanna re reach out, that's the easy way to get a hold of me or uh, you can probably find me on LinkedIn, um, reach out that way. I, uh, I'm happy to, uh, to connect with a like-minded individual and talk learning and development. I talk with you all day. I love that. I was thinking too, I'm like, I wonder if anyone listening, you know, has that high level strategic uh, position available at their company. If you want Matt to be your boss, 
like <laughs> holler, right? Like I'd want you to be my boss. So if anyone's listening and you have those high level positions, you know, Matt's looking to get back into the to the corporate world. So this this could be your boss, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you know, you, you. can say you met him on a podcast. <laughs> very flattering thank you for that and thank you again for the the conversations and I, I as I mentioned I think in a, a post the other day I learned uh, a ton from you in a 30-minute conversation the other day I've been doing this for 15 years and we had a 30-minute conversation and I walked away 15 percent smarter so um, to anybody who's out there on the fence about whether or not uh, you should be contacting Sarah to uh, to you know find your way into learning and development do it absolutely thank do it. you Thank you. Well, I appreciate you. I think this is the beginning of our uh, amazing friendship that we have here. And I know a lot of people will want to be reaching out and have some questions. So thank you for hopping on the call and hopping on with me today. And I know it's not the last time that we'll have you on the show. I'm sure there'll be plenty more topics that we can talk about uh, later down the line, but I really appreciate you joining today. I look forward to it. And thank you too. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If it resonated with you in any way, please let me know by subscribing, liking, and leaving a review. I'd love to hear from you on how you're using these tools as well as what you want to hear more of. So connect with me on LinkedIn at Sarah Canistra, send me a DM, or email me at hello at theovernighttrainer.com. I can't wait to hear from you. And until next week, stay learning.